If you're a Star Trek fan, you should listen to Inglorious Trexperts, the ultimate Star Trek podcast for sci-fi fans with a life. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books wherever books are sold. Burn, burn, and welcome back to Disco Nights, the show where we discuss the lights and darks, the days and nights of Star Trek Discovery. My name is Chase Masterson, and have we got a show and some reveals for you. But first, our guests, the host of the Disco Nights podcast, along with Got Thrones. She has written for Screen Rant and CBR. Alexandra August, great yeah. to have you back. Thank you. He is the longtime editor of Geek Magazine and has written books such as The World of the Orville. Welcome back, Jeff Bond. Thank you. And we go way back. Miss <laughs> Gabrielle Stanton, you know her work from Eon 4 in the 90s. Moonlight, Castle, The Vampire Diaries, Arrow, The Flash, Haven, and most recently, recently Titans. So great to have you back. She's a two-time Emmy winner, uh, Emmy-nominated writer. Emmy-nominated. Emmy-nominated writer. You. you made me feel really old, though, by starting in the 90s. Thanks. Well, you know, I had to just, you know, come right out and admit it. I'm sorry. We, you know, come on. Come no, on. no, you can't hide it anymore. It's a good thing we're still gorgeous. Well, yeah, and still working. So there you exactly. go. Exactly. It's great to have you with us, Gab. So, have we got some spoilers and some long-awaited reveals for you. This dreamy Captain Pike, okay? Um, finally, we find out what has happened to our captain and how the tragedy happened that really kicked off what Star Trek is and uh, all of the, the committed action that Spock took in the 60s finally makes sense that he was saving a, a, a longtime friend. Um, Jeff, let's start with you. What... What is your what are your thoughts on this the the strength of this captain coming in? He has brought an idealism back to Discovery and um, is certainly a well-loved character. Tell me your thoughts on that reveal and how it happened. Well, uh, I mean, certainly the, the I think for fans uh, Pike has been pro- probably the favorite element uh, of this season. Uh, I think the show uh, runners uh, you know made a conscious decision to kind of take in some of the criticism they were getting that this wasn't Star Trek and this was too dark uh, and and bringing in Pike uh, and the Enterprise, you know, uh, harkens back to the very origins of the whole Star Trek franchise. And and Pike, uh, you know, sort of even more than he was uh, shown in his one original (laughs) episode of Star Trek is a very warm a kind of uplifting, uh, lovable character, and Anson Mount, I think, uh, is like an idea. It's sort of everyone's ideal of what a starship captain uh, is, and uh, that has been, you know, through line uh, through this whole season. And and what I love about it 
is uh, exactly what you were talking about. And when I first saw, um, you know, <laughs> ages ago, uh, uh, the menagerie. Uh, and saw how that, uh, you know, original p- pilot footage was kind of incorporated into st- this Star Trek story. Uh, you know, I was fascinated watching this footage. Um, but I remember at the end of it just thinking, gee, that was a nice thing for Spock to do. <laughs> but like, what? Why are we making such a big deal out of yeah. it? Uh, yeah. it? You didn't have the context because we didn't know Pike um, as a person. Uh, outside of that one episode, that original pilot uh, episode, The Cage. So with, you know, Anson Mount uh, has created such a, a, a human character. Um, and, and particularly, you know, going back and seeing him uh, reunited with Vina uh, added so much context to that, and then yeah. then this whole idea, and I, you know, I have to say the time crystal idea is like a lost in space idea. Uh, it, mm. It's a little uh, the, the thing that's kind of bugged me about the last few episodes is um, there's a lot of magic thinking, and uh, it's less about. Um, we have someone brilliant like Spock uh, in our crew to figure something out. Then were, let's a, bring a space princess. A lot princess of people were responding in. to that criticism of time crystals being like, oh, Star Trek has plenty of different time travel. You know, there's like transporters aren't real. None of this technology yeah. is real. Why are you holding it to the standard? And I'm like, well, yeah, but there's a science behind replicators and transporters and warp drive that goes to a certain point and then they make a leap. It's really grounded in a lot of stuff. And time mm-hmm. crystal is not. It's not yeah. and there it, there's a silliness to it. I think uh, Larry Nemechek, um on my show referred like just drew comparisons to the Dark Crystal. There's <laughs> it, yeah. it's too connected to fantasy for Star Trek, yeah. and Pretty I fantasy, completely understand yeah. that. Yeah, how did you feel about that? You've written so much science fiction and and uh, so much in the genre. Basically, tell me your thoughts on where this show is going in terms of the crossover of fantasy and I, I'm willing sci-fi. to give the Time Crystal. I'm willing to give it a wait and see on it because what I think they're using it to do in a way that they couldn't just using pure science is I think they're trying to kind of bring it back to canon in a lot of ways because I felt like last season you know it wasn't there was a lot of questions raised and you kept saying to yourself well how is this going to fit in if you're saying this is a canon show how is this going to fit into the original series and then of course moving forward Um, and I think you know showing that episode this season where you saw um Pike on Talos Four and Spock and everything like Jeff was saying, bringing that in was was fantastic. I think what they're going to try to do with the time thing is answer some questions. You know, well, how did you know Spock and and Pike get together? How did they come apart? How does Spock end up back on the Enterprise? You know, how does Michael Berman like kind of fit into all this? Because she's obviously a character that we've never heard about for. Um, you know, for the last 40 years, although Spock apparently has a brother that we hadn't heard about for a really long time. Many so. people said to throw that in. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. yeah, there's a lot more of them. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping, even though it has a slightly fantastical element, that they're kind of using it as a, a piece of tech and maybe more like a Babylon 5 kind of tech, you know, a little mm-hmm. more fantastical, but they're going to use it for good ends, which is to kind of straighten out the, the canon a little bit so that by we, when we get to the end of the season, or by next season, we'll be like, oh, they had a plan. And as a writer, I know you don't always have a plan in the beginning, <laughs> but the idea is to make it look like you have a plan mm. by the end. 
So are they achieving that? What are your thoughts on on how that you know they're throwing these things in or they're fitting them in? Even as much as the you know the tenet of the show is, as you said, Burnham, who we never knew existed. Right. Are are they achieving that in the way that that you feel you know is is uh, is necessary in order to honor canon but still move the show forward? Think, I think they're trying very hard. I mean, yeah. I think you're never going to make people happy. You know, like not everyone is going to ever always be happy. But you have to kind of cut the difference a little bit um, as a writer when you like have so much uh, source material behind you that you want to stay honest and true to your devoted fans. But you also have to keep kind of an open entry point for new fans. You can't bog it all down in this like very strict history because you just lose a lot of drama and you end up, especially with a franchise like Star Trek, where you've done it before because, I mean, what story have they not done? Right. So there always has yeah. to be a twist. That, that's, I mean, after watching every iteration of Star Trek, that you know, even as... Uh, you have? Dis- discovery, really? Really, discovery can drive you crazy in some of the things that do- that it does, but at least you feel like you are watching something new being done with the format, whereas, yeah. you know, you watch the Enterprise, by Enterprise, it's just like... He had a it's dog, though. Same, that was yeah. <laughs> it's the right. same, you know, formula and format uh, week after week. The one thing that I do love about the, that was that was done with the time crystals, uh, you know, up to this point was the idea of having Pike kind of uh, choose his own, f- accept this fate, like yeah. make it a conscious uh, decision yeah. that he's accepted this horrible, uh, you know, fate of winding up in this wheelchair, and that that's another, you know. Uh, it, it is it's continuity porn to the you know the greatest <laughs> degree possible when you show that wheelchair, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the most iconic you know images uh, right. of all Star Trek. And, and in his words, "You are a Starfleet captain. You believe in service." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like almost too great. Uh, you know, because, oh, like just because there. It, it was, the the, the other thing that I'd say about Pike <laughs> is that. He's an element from outside of this show's format. It's something that was n- never really referenced or, or discussed as part of the the, the show in it, as it was in its first year, and it's kind of been you know uh, placed over yeah. that the 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 kind of already constructed <laughs> series, and to that and it pushes Burnham, who is the central character, I think it, it, it tends to overshadow her. And we see, you know, these very Pike-centric episodes. And then we see episodes like the, the episode where Pike, you know, goes and gets the time crystal also has a its B, you know, story of what's going on with Burnham. And, uh, you know, I, I found myself like struggling to remember what was going on with, with Burnham. But it's a brilliant uh, tie-in to what Star Trek is is really all it about, is, where it, it started, where it began. The there's kind very of a brave price and, to be paid for it. But I, I feel like Sinequa, and we've got a lot of Burnham. We, yeah. we, we're, that's, we're not lacking in. That's Sinequa is so powerful, especially in through. Um, I believe it's through the Valley of Shadows. Is that the one where we meet? We actually meet Doctor Burnham. Um, or maybe yeah, was it two I weeks? Think so. Yeah. I so think when so. she when she the range of emotions yeah. over her face when she realizes her mother's alive and has been the entire time and then socks up to Leland. I just right? oh, got that Wham. Um, Punch him in the nose. She was so incredibly too. powerful. And yeah. Pike was such a like Anson Matt was a wonderful 
support to her in all of their scenes, kind of sensing where she was and really taking a look, kind of a lower status in the performance, knowing how intensely emotional she was. So the dynamic between them, I think, works well. And Sneak was a strong enough performer and they work well enough together that I didn't I see what I see what you're saying. And I find myself kind of more drawn to Pike just because he warms my heart. But it's she's still like a very commanding presence and I still feel like at least to me the anchor of the show and capable of a huge range of emotion and, oh absolutely and it's, I mean it's, it's funny what you're saying because I think that's totally true because when you look he, he's so charismatic and we enjoy his character and the actor is doing it so well that we we almost except for you know that when they gave him that storyline if you really kind of go back and look at it he's kind of the straight man of the series a little mm-hmm. bit you know mm-hmm. he kind of plays off people he's you know more than being kind of the you know Captain Kirk, we're like, hey, I'm going in there. You know, he lets everyone kind of do his thing, and then mm-hmm. they come back and they talk to him. And I think his chemistry with uh, with Michael is great. I really like. He it. does give up a lot of uh, uh, of uh, uh, I wouldn't say give up authority, but he he delegates. He delegates. He's, he gives so his crew room to shine. Mm-hmm. I think he's done a great job too, in kind of the aftermath of the the time crystal thing. In, within that episode. Uh, some of his last scenes where you see how haunted he is by that choice. And, and I, I think he's done a great job of carrying that forward into the, the the last episode, too. Even though there's so much other stuff going on, there's still, you know, at least a moment or two where you're still seeing how that decision is still registering with him. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's fantastic. There's already, you know, like a fan petition to get yeah. uh, Pike uh, his own show. And, and that's, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity because that is, uh, uh, what, uh, another five or ten years or something of unexplored territory, but with very established uh, characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed they I was looking at the credits and they even – uh, list uh, Yeoman Colt, uh, who who's the spunky Yeoman in the, in the cage who uh, gets uh, put in the cage with uh, a Pike and and uh, number one, and I was trying to figure. I think she might oh, be the right. British, uh, which is kind of weird. There's a, a, a woman on the bridge. Oh who's yeah, British. she's British. Yeah, I would assume that's her because I don't think they would accredit her if she didn't have a line and she right. got oh, like yeah. one. And I'm not sure why they're retro. Fitting her as British, that literally but, could yeah. have just been like a little Easter egg, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I love that, and I think fan, like obviously fans are very interested in seeing that they have a bridge set and they have a you know CG Enterprise designed. That sure was um, such a glorious shining oh, thing. It was yeah. like a shiny new car, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just yeah. beautiful. Can we stay in there a little longer just to? Can we go touch it? Number one it's at the funny helm because right. it, I, I think it may have. You know, I think fan reaction uh, to Pike probably has taken them a little bit by surprise. And in fact, um, you know, from my understanding, a lot a lot of the people on the show were not happy with Anson Mount in his in, in first few episodes. They they didn't think he was doing enough, and they oh. I don't think they were like really they didn't really no the the cast. producers, oh, uh, producers. They, okay. they didn't really I think. And maybe it wasn't as obvious on set, you know, that how the camera was really reading him. Um, but, you know, he, I, in watching just the first episode, it was like clear, like how this guy was registering so perfectly as a captain. So I think that, the, you know, they've sort of been catching up in a way with with what his appeal has been. And, and uh, you know, I, I think I'm not sure that there was a plan to make such an authentic looking enterprise bridge 
um, and, and as this huge showpiece. Uh, so the, the the fact that they built that, uh, you know, there's also so much in the pipeline right now. I don't think that there's an, any serious consideration of doing a Pike oh, show. I mean, how many Pike Star Trek shows? Yeah, exactly. I want to see that. You have Pike Spock, you have one. I mean, you can have a, a like you a totally three-character uh, And those know, guys definitely are pros. I've heard, to a degree, you know, almost. They, yeah, that, that Anson Mount and uh, that's Spock and Pike hang out on the weekends, you know, yeah. and they just really there's a lot of good on screen chemistry the and nice off screen. About, uh, how they've been doing, you know, uh, the show with on CB, uh, CBS All Access with these shorts and things is that you, it seems like there's a capacity to do standalone things, you know, between seasons. So, may, you know, I, I suppose you could have do maybe like a 90 minute movie or do do a few uh standalone things you know with with uh uh pike and spock um some short treks or something and and maybe as a you know backdoor <laughs> pilot or something uh but there's clearly demand it's just a question of whether it, you know how much demand is it enough demand to really support a show or not i think there's going to be enough trek for a while with you know obviously the Section 31 show and and Patrick's Patrick show. show. I think that's, you know, that's going to be a lot. We don't want to make the same mistake as having too much Trek as, as quite possibly happened with DS9 followed so closely by right. Voyager and Enterprise, right? I mean, what are your thoughts, Gab, on, on the... There can never be too much Trek. That's it, right? <laughs> no, no I, I agree. I, what I like about this format, though, is kind of what Jeff is saying. I feel like you could kind of go in and out. You can do the shorts. Um, if you wanted to, you know, just kind of to keep fans going. I mean, last night's episode was an amazing example of the, of them using one of the Trek shorts and just tying it entirely into the, you know, the main series with Tilly's and, and, and the Queen. Wasn't and the Queen lovely? She I was fantastic. Absolutely love her as and an the, actress. The whole storyline was, was great. Name. And, uh, I, did, and I, yeah, she's. And just... my husband was like, "Did we miss this episode?" And I was like, "No, it was it was a Trek short." Yeah. So it, it was, was actually yeah. one of my least favorite Trek shorts. Just yeah, because my, mine too. I, and it, just to be the dissenting. Uh, Voice on this that that was one of my least favorite elements of the, of the show. It's like I said, like you've got Spock, you have all these brilliant people, but instead let's bring in an adorable She's <laughs> princess the queen. queen. She's the queen. And and I I but, love and anytime you bring a woman in to save the day I'm all for it I, 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 well, I even if she likes ice cream absolutely there's plenty of other women on the show I mean I I, I like and I love Tilly. Uh, She's, you know, one of the few, to me, consistently good elements of the first season. But I, I'm not entirely sold on how she's been used this season. She seems to just come in to say, hi, I'm an awkward <laughs> person with nothing really to contribute except this for everyone to tell me to shut up. <laughs> uh, and... She hasn't got as much as she had before, yeah, yeah. and she does. I mean, I think she's a fine actress, and obviously her comedic timing is great, but I think she's got more to give than they're allowing her. She's got a lovely I, yeah. sense of subtlety and yeah. and heart to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I well, feel like they, the fact that they keep kind of pushing her towards the Tilly shtick feels like there's a dearth of ideas maybe when it comes to mm-hmm. her, how to integrate her in a more in a full way without leaning so heavily on her comedic delivery and her awkwardness, which was I think the thing that people loved about her so much in the first season was that mm-hmm. we'd never seen somebody that was this just much of a mess right. on a starship before. <laughs> right. And it was utterly charming. But that, you know, it's important that we see her progress a little bit. And I feel like we haven't, we've seen the the evidence that she's moving forward. We haven't really seen her 
actually progress and learn and make mistakes and grow, I guess. I think it's great that they planted a seed with the short trek. And I, I do like this new character, the queen. I think she's... She's kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think I think Tilly this season was a little bit a victim of them using so many more of the ensemble characters. Yeah. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I was talking to someone about the first season and they were like, and we were talking about the um, the premiere and how he like, at, you know, Pike asked everyone their names and you're like, holy crap, yeah. I think I watched the first season. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what this chick's name was. Yeah. You know, so... Right. But I, but, you know, they actually created storylines for a lot of these characters that were just so ancillary the first season. Right. Yeah. So I think she probably was just a little bit of a victim of that. Because she does bring a really fresh voice. And I'm hoping next season they're clearing out the chafe a little bit there. If, if, if they're going to just have the people who, you know, are going with Michael... Mm-hmm. You know, go somewhere, right? Yeah, I've said, I mean, before, but the uh, to me, like Tilly, really beat uh, the Orville to the the punch of of having a totally contemporary sense of humor mm-hmm. in mm. a, a Star Trek, you know, world. Uh, and I think that she's, you know, I think the Orville kind of got a lot of like, and I love the Orville, but uh, I think they kind of got all the attention for that, and it really had sort of already been done with that character. Um, I mean, the, 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 this episode, uh, to me, <laughs> it's almost was almost a bit of a cheat and uh, a bait and switch. You know that you made you they made you think with the preview last week we're going to be watching this giant battle, and instead it's like let's all get on the bridge, <laughs> figure out the problem in like the opening five minutes, then spend thirty minutes uh, having everyone resolve <laughs> all of their. Of this was an episode of Real Housewives before they yeah. got yeah. it was like, starting extremely to drive sentimental, me crazy. way way yeah. more than by the time usually they got to the there were two montages. Yeah, goodbye yeah. to Discovery, yeah. and then goodbye to everyone else, and they were both really well executed, and I love them. But I was like, guys, this is guys. I'm like, this come is on, we know you're all not dying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And then there was the false goodbye when when she was gonna leave by herself, and then it's like, no, no, wait, we're all coming with you. They're not the only series regular next year. Yeah, enough already. So I liked the. I thought the, uh, the, the, the fact that like it just amused me having been a big, 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 big fan of Voyager that they do this whole goodbye montage to the ship when they self-destructed. And I thought that is so that's so nice. We've never seen that before. And Janeway said the auto-destruct like three times a season. It used to be something that they, you would see happen a lot. It was sort of this go-to device. And to see it now kind of like extended in this way it was really it was it felt sentimental, but it was also sweet because we really haven't treated it with that much gravitas before. Like it's a character. Yeah. Like the ship is yeah. a character. And to be fair we spent a lot of money on that ship. Yeah I was going to say it's a very <laughs> expensive ship. Yeah. When Starfleet yeah. does get back in touch they're going to be like hmm. You know are they actually going to do and is this going to be the answer to why we don't know who Burnham is and, and we are, or this, are they going to go into the future? That's kind of what I'm hoping. I mean, it's a crazy idea, but it's also something. It's so funny because it almost seems like another kind of like listening to the the crazy fans uh, idea because I hear so much like, oh, I would like this show if it was, you know, because I hate the design, you know, design doesn't look like it's 1960s. So if this was just set in the future, you know, I, I could accept it. It's almost like, all right, if you want us to set, set this in the future, this well, is what we're going to do to you. I mean, I'm kind of rooting for that, at least yeah. for a season, because I mean, every single Star Trek that has come out has always been a prequel. I mean, not except mm-hmm. for like DS and you know Star Trek and DS Nine, but all the rest of them, like when you know they kind of relaunched it, were, were always prequels. And like, why don't we go a thousand years in the future and see what's happening? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of 
kind of a new. You're idea. right. That's yeah. I can see that. It's a very new, well, fresh that, I mean, take on it, which is what Picard, they're going for. Obviously, and yeah, I think it's a it's a real uh, schism between you know people wanting the, the whole idea of, uh, after watching Star Trek for forty years or whatever that the whole appeal of it becomes nostalgic and you want to you revisit. The, the origins of it, uh, but you also want it to be futuristic. So speaking <laughs> so. of revisiting the origins, what we've got is Pike and his relationship with Vina is re- revisited. And obviously there is no other Susan Oliver. Mm-hmm. But we love Melissa George, right? She did a beautiful mm-hmm. job as as Vina and, and being... You know, uh, just the intimacy that we see, and that raises the stakes on uh, us getting him back uh, to the to the to her. Uh, what do you think we're going to see in terms of Pike's the rest of Pike's life? The wh- what do you think we need to see in order to enrich that character? Not what do you think we're going to see, but mm-hmm. just what what is it that you know? How how can we really become more invested in him in in ways that they have already seen through. Do you think we're going to see Vina again? What are the... Uh, I don't know if we'd see Vina again, because we'd have to go back to tell us... I mean, we wouldn't. I guess they could project her, but I have a feeling that it's, you know, like a three-beat story, because now, you know, we know that Spock and, you know, Pike have been there kind of three times. Um, the first original time, and then the time we just saw in Discovery, and then ultimately what will be the cage. Um, so I think that's kind of close. I mean, I would love to, again, like I was, did, did a little bit of math and apparently I think Spock says in uh, the menagerie that he and Pike served together for something like 18 years or something. I mean, it's some really long wow. period of time. Oh, Thanks wow. for grabbing so, that out of the past. <laughs> I think I could be wrong. Don't, I don't want, don't want notes, but it was some, <laughs> it was some, uh, long period of time. And I, you know, so I think that's why they have this huge history before they come on, because I think discovery is only about three or four years before. The original series, and again, I'm bad at math. I think it's ten. I, yeah. Discovery is ten. Yeah, ten. Okay, so good. they, yeah, they, so actually, so then they do yeah, have so another that, like, yeah, so maybe they have like another too. eight years or so together. Yeah. So that's what you kind of. When I would love to see is that you know relationship grow because I think it informs not only Pike, but I think it informs the relationship that Spock will then have with Kirk so and, much. Well, I think I think I like yeah. that you said that because we were talking. I was talking about Ethan Peck last night and how I enjoy him, but not really because he reminds me of Leonard Nimoy, yeah. but because he's he really has evoked Scott, Spock for me over the course of a few episodes. And it's just it's kind of this sort of I, I kind of was neither, neither here nor there about Spock. I, I love the character, of course, but he's never been my perennial favorite. And um no, I, I love it. It's just, you know, taste. Uh, but I, so when, when they brought him back, I was more like, okay, God, here's, like, we're all, it's season two and we're already seeing the Enterprise and Spock, like, just can we back off the nostalgia a little bit and, you know, stretch this out. Um, but as he's been on the show, he's just this kind of almost like comforting presence because he's familiar, but he's really still alive and not trying to be this sort of ghost from the past goes from a past performance he's really originated it but still made it kind of true to what it should be i guess mm. and um yeah i so this is a, a bit off the subject of this particular episode of disco nights but um you know because we're we're really focusing on pike here uh pike's place as we've termed this but i want to talk a bit about control and how that is taking shape and pushing the story forward and you know, a lot of fans, I think, are confused about what control is exactly. How is it Leland, but it's also bigger than Leland? Talk to me about that. I know you know this um, quite a bit, and Gab, I'd love for you to 
weigh in on this? It's, it, as I understand it, is an artificial intelligence that's not quite fully sentient and needs the rest of this da- data on discovery from the sphere that we saw to become fully sentient, which is a little bit confusing to me because it seems very sentient now. Yeah. But for whatever reason, it needs this to progress to this like next stage of being. And um, it's comprised of this intelligence, but it can obviously manifest itself physically via these sort of like climbing nanites or in basically killing and then inhabiting a human body. Yeah. It's very creepy, but it's also, I think a lot of people's complaints is that it's been really, really Borg-like. I was going to say, see, that's my personal theory. I know nothing about anything, but I think maybe control was originally like the Borg. The Borg Mm -hmm. came out of control. Because now that we have the whole time thing, you know, maybe someone ends up going back into the past to hide it or something. Yeah. And then they inadvertently or they get it. Control gets it and has to hide somewhere and goes and hides in the past. And then the next thing you know... Boom, they're Borg. Mm-hmm. And it, even uh, when uh, there was another line uh, that was not resistance is futile, but struggle yeah, is. Struggle is pointless. Yeah. pointless. Struggle is pointless. Right. I was hmm. very angry. angry. We're going to workshop yeah. this well, and get it to Well, there was something about the whole eye needle thing that yeah. you reminded yeah. 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 me of. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, Stylistic you know, similarity. Yeah. captain with eye needle yeah, going into his. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they want us to know this, so maybe we shouldn't say that we know this. I wonder what that was about with the eye needle and the struggle is pointless anyway um but control is moving the story story forward in ways that is is fascinating to me because of leland's relationship with section 31 and uh, gab talk a bit about this and how this impacts the story dynamics and the you know just the, the shape of it as a writer what do you see these writers doing well, it's interesting because, I mean, in, in the Star Trek universe, you know, artificial intelligence has always been like something that, you know, writers have played with. I mean, you had uh, V'ger and you had, what was his name, Nomad? Mm-hmm. Nomad and, you know, the Borg, obviously. So, you know, they're kind of carrying on on that tradition. I think what I like about Control is um, it's something big. It's something scary. Uh, what I did not love about the first season was that everyone seemed uh, all of the characters that we had kind of come to know in the Star Trek world had was all kind of at odds. You know, you had the Klingons around. Everyone was just mad at each other. What I kind of like about this is it's kind of like a zombie. Everyone's allowed to kill them and no one has to feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a very valuable uh, you know, reason to, to make the main villain something that you know no one was going to be like, oh, I feel so sorry for well, the evil robot. Leland has this right. sort of tragic like he, he they, does, they've yes. painted him as this guy who's been who's chosen this life but is now you know as he ages is getting less and less comfortable with the things he's asked to do clearly carrying a lot of guilt for what he pulls around I think Ellen Von Sprang has been wonderful is, at yeah. communicating that when I don't think they give Leland the best dialogue but the fact that he's not somebody that you feel like he's a little bit irredeemable so control is simultaneously humanized but at this but as well as also having this sort of like ability to kill them like mm-hmm. it, they're still a villain I'm not going to feel bad when mm-hmm. they're destroyed it's but it is going to be like this sort of almost beautifully tragic thing when it comes to Leland and right. you almost want Ash to like have to kill Leland yeah. or, or Georgina or something I don't know say you it know? again now well <laughs> Ash because you know he's kind of he's like the Leland protege in a weird mm-hmm. way you know I mean he kind of has that same the ends justify the means kind of thing right so you know as a writer I would like to see you know that you know, Ash have to make that decision, turn his back on 31. Uh, and I'd like to see Ash. Yeah, I'd like Ash to sacrifice himself for <laughs> the, the greater good, because uh, I've been 
you know, really bugged by the whole, you know, Burnham Ash romance because it makes Burnham look dumb that she wasn't able to figure out what was going on with him and that she's after knowing all this, she's still, you know, uh, wants to be in love with him. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're going to if that character is going to serve a purpose, I, I it, self-sacrifice you know to me I would think, be though, a nice one I to th- I think we are going to go to the future next season because they got him off the ship yeah. in a really clunky way, and they got a really gorgeous goodbye kiss that was incredible, like incredibly indulgent. I love, but I love it when people kiss on Star Trek. So it was great, but the whole and, t- twice that it's happened exactly. in history, <laughs> fifty years. Um, and yeah, so they like really were like, okay, let's make sure you say your goodbyes to everyone, and then just like then he's like, okay, I'm actually not coming, and then very obviously leaves, and now we have this whole crew minus Pike and Spock on a ship about to go to the future, and it yeah. just seems like they're setting up seems the season like setting up and leaving behind yeah. the pieces that would need to have you know for the Section Thirty One show and for potentially Pike and Spock. Mm, interesting. Yeah, leaving behind the pieces that. Well, yeah. but Spock is still going, so next week oh. obviously. Right. He's going to have to change his mind. Mm-hmm. He will. I was, I was kind of surprised. I was kind of surprised he was there. I wanted, really wanted Michael to say, I, I really can't have our parents lose two kids in the same day. You know, but yeah. They're on board right now. They came yeah. to see me off. Okay, that was, that, <laughs> right. was, that, was, that was wonky. That was totally wonky. But you know what? I'm sure they did it because it was great. But when there you're sitting there, you're like, that was actually it the, was a purposely sentimental scenes. That was the one that I I liked and that I thought was well written, and and it made me mad actually. That I was like, why isn't this you know have some breathing space well, because I, to, to yes, resonate? Yes, but here's the thing: more. they ha- make this big deal about how they can contact Starfleet. Like, no, can you just be like, hey, Sarek, can you uh, get a message? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. He is, yeah. How right. did they get there? And how did they? Why get are they in an active like war zone? Yeah, and why don't they take people like... with them to leave? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I was, know like, it's James not... Frain is so good. Yeah. Say it again. James Frain is so good. Yeah, and I'm is, yeah. kicking myself. Yeah. I can't remember the, the name of the actress who Mia plays. Kirshner. Mia Kirshner. Yeah. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. really yeah. like her. Yeah. That sort of speaks to my perennial problem with Discovery. And it's it's there are episodes that I really, really enjoy and can forget about this. And there are episodes where it bugs the crap out of me. But I feel like they're great at getting to the money. They're great at the money shot. They're not great at getting there. Yeah. Mm. They're not great at supporting it and earning it. And that's the push and pull for me because it's so well executed the production value is so high it's so well acted it has all these hallmarks of prestige television that we haven't gotten to enjoy with Star Trek before but Spock's parents like Michael Burnham's parents are visiting her yeah. in like in battle it was really in, in interesting in an active when, conflict when, yeah. when, like, when, she's at college when they're, yeah. when they're apparently cut off from the rest of the Federation yes. <laughs> and Sarek's big chance to apologize for all of the things that he's done that are not cool you know as a as a Vulcan, as a father, whatever, and Amanda just goes, she doesn't say anything. I mean, I love that she stood up to him. You know that you know you're you're over it, me, but not but but not as a wife, just as a, you know as, a huge, as the leader the of the fact Vulcan. That he apologizes is pretty huge. That's yeah. why I thought it, it was great that she didn't mm-hmm. say anything. It was right. kind of acknowledging that this was a. Huge I like that she didn't say anything because yeah. he's been a jerk. I and, like that that scene. I, again, it just like that. We had thirty minutes of those scenes. So yeah, there that, was a and lot. That was like mm-hmm. more than halfway. <laughs> way through so uh, yeah it and and it wasn't like it was all unearned because it all, many or most of those scenes were paying off things that had been going off on through the whole season or even in the into the first season right. of the show but just to have so many of those in succession and to basically interrupt the entire plot of of, of the, what this show people sort of thought this episode was going to be before they go on the trip like yeah. you don't yeah. care about the episode right. before they go on the trip yeah. right. you care about the trip yeah. they have to fill out 22 episodes so it's yeah. 
<laughs> so in terms of more as as a while we have you here as uh, Gab as as a writer and the shape of this whole thing. Talk to me some more about what you what you feel like the writers are doing and the setups that they've done and you have a lot of great notes over there. I want to know. No, I know these what... are just so I can remember all the actors' names because you know oh, right. when, when I when I um, <laughs> when I uh, watch TV, I try really, really, really hard um, and movies too, but mostly TV to not watch it as a writer. You know, like every once in a while, like I see a boom in the shot, and I'm like, oh, no. But I really try to right. like you know kind of put on my like fan, yeah, my fan thing. But it's it's funny something Alexander said that I think is true. They have been very good at I feel like a lot of what they've been do- doing these last few episodes for better or for worse and, and again we agree the moments are lovely is they're like okay what do we want to see like what's the moment this week and you come yeah. up with that scene that fantastic scene and then you're like okay how do we get there mm-hmm. and then yeah. you get up to the board you know and or however they, I assume they're either on a whiteboard or on uh, index cards probably a whiteboard and you kind of backfill from that scene and then front fill kind of after that scene and it just makes it a little little bit unsatisfying where you're like I don't again I'm not sure if I really earned this but on the other hand you get that scene that you love and so you're kind of like okay fine forget it I don't really care like the Um, opening sequence this week I should point out that like Sarek did he telepathically contacted Michael so I guess it's like so they're kind of I should give them credit for that but that opening (laughs) scene like that beautiful shot of him on the beach Mm -hmm. meditating that was gorgeous, but that, that was it, beautiful. Yeah, it, but the, like I feel like we didn't get to see, if we'd gotten to see maybe him and Amanda make the decision to go find Michael and be like, we need to see her before she goes. There's like something spiritual on a level here that we don't understand is is happening. Like he can just kind of sense it in the general zen, like the general energy of things, and then they make the decision to go find her. Or and maybe get there. he couldn't sense it, and Amanda insisted. Yeah, right. I'd like to yeah. see more strength from her. Yeah. Well, yeah. also, you know, the other interesting thing is, I mean, this the show is not short on you know budget. And um, the stories are very large and very ambitious. There is a very good chance that somewhere in someone's editing bay is mm-hmm. exactly that scene. You know, that sometimes you end up getting too much material and you have to cut out, like, entire scenes. So there could be that in there. My big question about that scene, though, was does Vulcan have an ocean? It does now, babe. I, I don't know. I, didn't I mean, when she got lost in the Vulcan Forge, everybody, like I saw on Twitter, I'm not as familiar with, with Vulcan geography. Um in all seriousness um, but there were trees in the Vulcan Forge like she was in a forest and people were like uh, that is like supposed to, it's like Spock's volcanic world, the, and rocky Spock's and world the, mm. the novel which I think kind of like people consider kind of canon in a weird way I think there was like some kind of like forest type thing but I don't remember an ocean nice thing. Spock's mm-hmm. world reference by the way okay <laughs> um or maybe they yeah. were on a different planet. They didn't have to be on Vulcan. Yeah, maybe they were on vacation. Well, it's a very nice place for people with no emotions to go. Yeah. Because can't we, you know... It seems very meditative, sit mm-hmm. there in the ocean. I would do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, like, use it on some people who can appreciate it, yeah. you know, feel joy. But, Amanda loves but it. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's for Amanda. Amanda's always dragging Sarah to the beach. Um, so we got just a few more minutes left. Um, Pike and Spock's relationship... I think would be worth revisiting just in, in my estimation because of course Spock would go save Pike you know from from that fate if possible you know way back in in the original series because it's the right thing to do and because he was his captain and you know just basically it's the right thing but it would be nice to see more connection with them that is built uh, before that happens, any any more thoughts on that? Because Pike is this is this is the Pike's place episode. So, 
Uh, I like that he's a paternal figure to Spock yeah. almost. Yeah. There's a little bit of blurring with that, um, which I think, I don't know how much that echoes their relationship in the menagerie in the cage, but I feel like it does a little bit. And I feel like that sort of, I like the way this is informing, I think, I forget who said it, but I like the way this is informing his relationship with Kirk. I can see that. And like I was saying before, I think what I meant to get to about Ethan Peck is that his performance is so organically Spock without mimicking Leonard Nimoy that it still feels real, but it's also informing the Nimoy that we'll see that, that we would ostensibly get in the future. Oh, 100%. I mean, the, in yeah. terms of like the mentorship and everything for Pike, I mean, let's talk about the accident that puts Pike, you know, gives Pike the radiation. I mean, yeah. that scene was literally like from the Wrath of Khan with, you know, Spock yeah. and, and Kirk. I mean, I think... We, oh, God, know, that's right. You know, with the handprint on the thing. I mean, I think, Ugh. you know, whether Spock was there, I, I couldn't tell, like, to witness it. They kept it kind of, you know, to witness his death or not. I mean, I think that kind of sacrifice is ultimately ultimately what informs Spock for, you know, his own sacrifice. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. they've they've done a great job of, of working out the relationship between Spock and Burnham. And I love how I loved initially when, I mean, for one thing, Spock is very unformed when he it comes because of what's happened to him. And we see him kind of getting himself back together over a, a number of episodes. And I loved that they there's this residual bitterness between them that is really out up front uh i I thought it was really daring to show both of them being really actively cruel to to one another um and and i I thought it was very organic how they evolved that and smoothed it out over a a series of episodes instead instead of uh, because i think in uh and i can't i wish i could come up with an example of this but a it seems like they've been uh, uh, guilty of just solving some of these problems with a line or, mm-hmm. you know, just like, OK, mm-hmm. that problem is all. I, I guess that what I would say is the whole evo- supposed evolution of Burnham in the first season, which I don't know if you ever got to, but they literally they set her up as this, you know, uh, pariah. Who, yeah. And you think the whole show is going to be about her slowly working her way up from this and then at the end sort of season one they sort of just give her a medal it's Have like an award. yeah it's like right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Don't worry so about the I, I was really yeah. glad to see you. that they didn't yeah. take the, the easy route with Kirk with with uh Burnham and Spock but the the what's going on with Spock and Pike has been harder to get a hold of because so much focus is on Spock and Burnham. We haven't really seen a lot of interaction. In fact, I'm trying to remember if there's a in the preview for the whole season there's that you know, do I see a smile on your face? Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what episode or did they even get to that. Maybe yeah. that's that's actually the the kind of climax of their relationship because I I love that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so uh, that may be, I guess that's, we, we just have one more episode, right? Or, or, yeah. So that, I yeah, guess yeah, if yeah. we don't yeah. see it, this it. <laughs> in this, yeah. this episode, they yeah. have a lot to, you know, obviously I was have to assume we're going to see, although I guess it's not guaranteed we're going to see a giant battle. Uh, we, it might all just be a prelude to that, and then they come up with some other solution. They had to shoot so much just to get those flashes that people see of the giant battle that I feel like someone yeah. out there actually shot the battle. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have ah, to solve all of, all of these issues. It, it would have been a waste episode. if they didn't. Yeah, it would have been totally a waste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't waste that kind of money. No. Right. And, uh, but, but I was trying to figure out, like, what the – there's, like, a warhead in one of them. Is it the Discovery? Or, no, the Enterprise. It's the oh, Enterprise. Yeah, it's yeah, a photon torpedo. They said there's a photon torpedo lodged in the hall, which I love shots like that. I mean, I feel like – like my my biggest Star Trek's are TNG uh, 
DS9 and Voyager, and we so rarely got to see the ships damaged, mm-hmm. I'm assuming because of budget. That's the, um, and it was so, to me, it's always exciting when you see a torpedo like go through the, the Enterprise saucer section. I think the first did that was yeah, in, but, uh, well, it, it, they do it, obviously, they do it in the Wrath of Khan, but I remember like kind of the Star Trek Six when they show a torpedo go right that, through that's what the, I, the, the saucer section. That, I remember thinking, oh my God, I've well, never seen Or that, that episode yeah. of DS9 yeah. where they come, I forget who, it's defined or a shuttle, they come back and find the station's been attacked and like one of the pylons is right, dangling. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like, <gasps> that's a whole... No, uh, <laughs> Those models are expensive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. CG, that's yeah. where we start seeing all that stuff with CG because it's so much easier to do. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, we're going to have to wrap up, but any last thoughts, burning desires, anything else you want to say specifically about <laughs> Pike and Pike's place? <laughs> Hello, listeners. It's J.D. Voik once again bringing you your moment of disco science. There was so much I could have talked about this week, but I managed to narrow my discussion down to three topics. Okay, so here's topic number one why Michael has to be the one to take Discovery into the future. We're told that the original time travel suit was tailored to Dr. Burnham's DNA, which makes Michael's mRNA the closest genetic match. I did briefly mention this back when I talked about bringing Dr. Culber back from the dead, but a mother and child do share identical mitochondrial DNA, which is abbreviated either as mtDNA or mDNA. MDNA and mitochondria in general have a really weird history. Scientists hypothesize that a super duper long time ago, cells with DNA basically ate some mitochondria, and rather than stripping them for parts, well, they didn't. Instead, mitochondria, and the instructions for making more of them, got embedded in cellular life and passed down throughout basically every species of multicellular organism, from fungi to plants to animals, which is pretty nifty. But unfortunately for the scriptwriter and by extension Dr. Stamets, that's not mRNA. No, that's a completely separate thing. The M stands for a completely different word. mRNA stands for messenger RNA. RNA is based off of your unique, or if you're an identical twin, your almost unique, DNA profile. It's different from DNA in that instead of a double-stranded helix, there's only one strand, like half of a ladder that somehow got twisted up. Now, mRNA has a very important job in your body. You know how DNA is kind of like a set of instructions for how your body works? Well, your body wants to keep your DNA safe inside of your cells as nuclei as much as possible. So when it needs to access those instructions to make stuff, mostly proteins, it creates an RNA copy of just the piece it needs. And then that RNA leaves the nucleus and runs the protein-producing show. mRNA is basically a copy of your grandma's old stuffing recipe that she keeps stored in her head with all of her other knowledge, but she wrote it down for you because that's what you had to bring to the Thanksgiving potluck. Technically, your mitochondrial DNA does create messenger RNA for a select few protein recipes, but if you just say mRNA, you're talking about the other stuff. So yeah, they use the wrong biology term. Not that important in the grand scheme of things, but inaccurate vocabulary at least lets me share some knowledge about how stuff actually works. For topic number two, we turn to the conference room scene, where they're trying to figure out how to get energy to activate the time crystal. Giorgio suggests to pick a nova and fire an antimatter missile into its core, in order to force it to go supernova so they can siphon the energy somehow. The way Giorgio says this line, I think we're supposed to take it to mean that a nova is just a weaker version of a supernova, but they're not. Kind of. In a way, they're actually weirder. Basically, you have two stars, or rather, one regular star and one dead core of another called a white dwarf. And if they're close enough together, the white dwarf's gravity will pull some of the outer hydrogen gas off of its neighbor. When that gas gets too close to the white dwarf and in too great an amount, the heat causes that hydrogen to undergo nuclear fusion, 
releasing a bunch of new light and energy for a short amount of time. That is the nova. The eruption then throws most of the gas away from the white dwarf, which, if it can, will go back to stealing stuff from its neighbor, and the whole process repeats itself. In other words, a nova is an event. Can events have cores? I don't think so? As the name suggests, novas do not literally produce new stars. I mean, supernovas technically don't either, they just vomit out compounds that eventually end up in future stars and planets and stuff. You can blame the name on 16th century astronomer Tycho Brahe, that's the original Danish pronunciation of Tycho Brahe, because he saw a new dot in the night sky. Technically, the dot had already been there, it was just too dim to see beforehand. Oh, and the terms nova and supernova were used interchangeably until the early 20th century, which did us no favors. We still suffer the consequences, because there are two main types of supernova. The one we're most familiar with are the massive star core collapse ones, but others are caused by white dwarfs stealing too much matter off of their companion, losing all structural integrity, and exploding. A star that went nova in its past could potentially end its life by this type of supernova. That's why I say they're only kind of not the same. We detect around 10 novas a year in the Milky Way, but there may be as many as 50, so at least they are far more abundant than supernovas. But really, in theory, you wouldn't need to shoot a nova with an antimatter missile to generate one foe of energy. If you don't remember what a foe is, I guess you have to go back and listen to my science minute from two episodes ago. Because a matter-antimatter reaction is 100% energy efficient, using the infamous E equals mc squared, we can calculate how massive an object we'd need with an equivalent amount of antimatter to equal a supernova. It's about 100 Earths. Hmm, I don't think they make missiles that big. Okay, how about this? You get together a bunch of mass and dump it onto a white dwarf to trigger a supernova. You only need to get it up to 1.4 solar masses. That's, uh, no, that's, um, that's not helpful at all. I'm about as useful as Georgiou here. Okay, final thing. Queen Poe says that she's going to need Planck-level energy to replicate our supernova. The Planck system of units is absolutely real, and is basically used by scientists who work at universal extremes. It resets constants used in physics equations like the speed of light or the gravitational constant to one. And in doing so, it spits out the sizes of certain Planck measurements, many of which are obscenely big or small. For example, the Planck second is the smallest possible unit we can break time into, 5.4 billion trillion trillion trillionths of a second. The Planck temperature, which is basically what the universe was right after the Big Bang, is 140 million trillion trillion degrees Celsius. It's the temperature at which all of the laws of physics break down. There is a Planck unit of energy. It's 2 billion joules. Yes, I did only use 1 billion word. It's nowhere near on the scale of those other guys. You regularly release this amount of energy by burning all of the fuel in a 15-gallon gas tank. It's one of the few Planck units that actually lies somewhere our brains can comprehend. So Jet Reno's claim that Discovery's EPS grid can't handle that is rather surprising. As is the claim that the spore drive would need 12 hours to recuperate. And this is why you have a science advisor give a final read-through of your scripts. We're coming up on the end of Discovery's second season, so I'm about to run out of new science topics. If you have a Star Trek science question you want me to answer after the show ends, assuming they keep the podcast running, feel free to tweet me at JD Voik. That's J-D-V-O-Y-E-K. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>
any last thoughts, burning desires, anything else you want to say specifically about Pike and Pike's place? (laughs) I think he's a character that I want to see more of. So I'm hoping they either bring him back in shorts or, you know, figure out a way to kind of bring him back. I think we'll see at least a little bit more more of him. But yeah, that's the it's it's funny because this is uh, I remember the, you know, Make a Captain Sulu show uh, mm, <laughs> petition. Right. There's been a, and there's was a war for this to me. I mean, and I hate to say this, people will hate me for this, but this to me seems like a legitimate good yeah. idea. Yeah. Uh, that that <laughs> yeah. Do you have a format that you can already see for, for a Pike show that you couldn't necessarily see? And doesn't he kind of look like show? a young William Shatner? Let's be honest, he, he does. does. He well, does. He's emotionally, yeah. and he's clearly, and uh, this is another reason people love him is he is a, a fan. I and and uh, oh yeah, yeah. The, p- yeah. There's a lot yeah. of kind of gatekeeping and like, oh, this actor is not r- a real fan of the show, so they're he they're, started they watching can't really it interpret- in the. Original series yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. So, so he his mom clearly had to, d- knows how to d- kind of do an homage to Kirk. He yeah. said that he went to you know sit in the ca- the chair and was trying to do it better than <laughs> At Star Trek. Than, Vegas. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. He, th- yeah. So th- yeah. He's. I've said this at the beginning of the season, just from the trailer. I was like, he. I was like, there's something about Star Trek, and he nails it. It's kind of a je ne sais quoi about a Star Trek captain, and he's got that. There's just a nobility about them. You know mm. that they're not. It's Cisco. I think really towed with some gray areas, but at the end of the day, you know that they have a moral compass that they're fighting for. Yeah. And he nails that. I think. And also, he is the most emotionally well balanced captain we have ever seen. Oh, I mean, definitely, yeah. He is totally yeah. at peace with himself. He mm-hmm. does not have an ego. He is fine to learn from his crew and be close with them at the same time maintain professionalism. Like it has a, he, you have, he has a huge confidence that, you know, his identity is not in making every decision and always being right. He respects yeah. his team, mm-hmm. which brings, you know, back that idealism. And uh, as you said, nobility is a great word for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, dreamy. Plus dreamy. <laughs> dreamy. <laughs> <Even> hurt. <laughs> Anyway, well, thank you all so much for being with us. Uh, great episode. And thank you, our audience, for being with thank us you. for another episode of Disco Nights. I really do want to thank, again, Alexandra August, Jeff Bond, and Gabrielle Stanton. Thank you for being with us thank this you. week. Busy people. Glad you could make it. And, uh, and again, thanks again to our audience. Um, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like The 430 Movie. <clears throat> Every Friday, in which a writer, a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies, as well as Inglorious Trexperts, hosted by Mark A. Altman and Darren Doctorman. And that's about all things Star Trek. That's available every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And there's also Best Movies Never Made, which is on Monday nights. Also, look for Disco Nights more, more, more as uh, we give you our bonus episodes each week where our guests review the previous week's episodes along with our disco science, She Blinded Me with Science moment from J.D. Voyek, which is always a hit. She's fantastic. Yeah. You can watch Star Trek Discovery on CBS All All Access in America or on Netflix internationally. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on at Disco Nights Pod on Twitter or at Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. Please do. Also, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Networks, as well as producers Natalie Maschiale and Cynthia Hodge, as well as executive producers Dean Devlin, woo and Mark Altman, woo So, until next Sunday, this is Chase Masterson saying thanks again for joining us. Disco lives.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.